Hello, everybody. So where was I? <laughs> yeah, so great to see you all. Uh, I want to th publicly thank Steve Spanner for doing such a wonderful job as my substitute. We're blessed to have a guy like that, and I really deeply appreciate that. Um, I wanted to share a couple of thoughts with you before I begin about uh, what it was like to be away from you, <clears throat> especially these last three weeks. Uh, and we had a heavy heart as we saw this hurricane bared down. We were, we were in California the last three weeks, in Carmel, right, right below Pebble Beach. I would walk on the, on the beach every day on the beach road, right next to the 18th fairway of Pebble Beach. I would walk there every day, and as, you know, with a heavy heart, honestly. We did not relax in the last three weeks, just watching what was going on here, knowing the pain that was being inflicted and what would be inflicted. And so, as we watched it the first week, we were determining the direction of the storm, and Linda and I decided we wanted our son to move out of Fort Lauderdale and come to Naples because the storm was supposed to hit on the East Coast. You know that. So we make all these arrangements. He's got our dog and his own dog, and so we make all these arrangements. He loads the car up. He gets ready to drive over here, and we get up, and Linda says to me, bad news. I said, what? They just changed it. It's going to Naples. I go, no, no. And so that, that began two or three days of tremendous anxiety, as now what are we going to do? It's too late to evacuate. He can't get a plane. He can't get out. He can't drive because you can't get gas. The highway's backed up. You realize that if you don't leave about five or six days before, you're stuck. You're here, all right? I mean, I laugh when people say, well, well I can't understand why some people just stay put. Because you can't leave, all right? They don't understand that. Uh, and so... That was a difficult situation. Uh, now, then, of course, it's coming to Naples, and so he got a spot to take care of. Now, we watched. It was as if a truck was rumbling slowly with an atomic bomb on it, and it's coming to Naples. And every day, multiple times a day, we're watching the Weather Channel from California with a very, very heavy heart. It was not that we were afraid of our house. We were afraid for you. We were afraid of the pain that was going to be... Uh, visited here, and we were praying and praying, God, please have mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Uh, and I'm going to tell you about how God answers prayers and ignores what I would call our moronic prayer. Because here we are, as the storm is about to dead center over Naples. I get a call from somebody in the class uh, and I won't say who said to me, oh, did you see the center of the storm is now going to come right over Naples. Naples is going to be destroyed. I needed to hear that 3,000 miles away. I said, all right, thanks. Thanks for giving me that information. I, all right. And so now we're praying like there's no praying that God take the storm and just move it 40 miles off of Naples. Not realizing that if that's what had happened, the storm surge would have put Naples under 15 feet of water. And so you see how we pray for things that we don't even know are outside of God's divine and perfect will. And that is why when we pray, we should finish the prayer with, nevertheless, Lord, in your perfect will. Okay? Because we don't even know what to pray for. All right? And I give you that as a perfect testimonial example of what I myself went through. 
And so what I've learned is it's, it's not only the hurricane that's brutal, it's the post-hurricane. And so every day, trying to get Florida power and light, and I didn't have power, I didn't have water, the water main would yanked out of the house because I wanted to be able to put some people in the house even though we weren't there. We had a generator. That was good for four days until it ran out of power, and then they wouldn't, they, fuel, it wouldn't, they wouldn't fill it after that. So that was another tortuous couple of days. But God sustained us. But in the middle of this whole mess, I'm walking alone on the Carmel Beach Walk right underneath Pebble Beach. And as I'm walking, I see a group of people. Hayes alluded to this this morning. About 30 people in a circle. And I look down as I see this. And it just the Lord touched me and said, you need to go down there. You need to go down there. Those people are, are worshiping. And I didn't know that. So... I climbed the many steps down to the, to the beach, and I walked over to where they are, and literally it's within spitting distance of the 18th fairway of Pebble Beach. And these people are, are worshiping. They're in a service, and so they're in a circle. And as I come, and I quietly come in to the back end of the circle, and the fellow who was ministering stopped and said, welcome, would you, would you like to worship with us? And I said, yes, I would. He said, well, let me tell you who we are. We are the Evangelical Covenant Church of America. We are here for a conference. Every single person here is a church leader from some state in the United States. Every state is represented. And we are going to have communion. This is our communion table. It was on a ledge, a rock ledge. Uh, and, and they had the bread, and they actually had two glasses of wine uh, for communion. He said, would you like to join us in communion as well? I said, yes, I would like to join you in communion. I'm saved. I would like to join. He said, well, let me tell you who we are. And he said that. And then he asked me who I was. And I told him who we were coming from Naples, Florida. And as soon as you said that, everybody went, oh. <laughs> you say Naples, Florida now to anybody out in the United States, they go, ooh. <laughs> they know. Uh, and, and so uh, after he ministered, uh, he directed one of the church leaders to pray for communion. And he said, this, this church leader, and I remember this 35 people here, I don't know any of them. He said, he pointed to one of the other leaders. He said, I want you to go over and put your hands on John. I want you to pray for him right now. I ask God to pray for him, to lift him up, to give him peace, and to, and to give those back in Naples peace and to bless his ministry, do that. And this man came over, put his hands. Now think about this. I'm in godless California. <laughs> you understand? You know what California, Bill, Bill knows. He came out of California. But God had directed me to his people on the beach, below Pebble Beach, just to let me know that you see, I love you, I care for you, I have people all over the world. And this man put his hands on me, and gave a powerful prayer to lift me up, to anoint my ministry, to protect me, to give me peace, to bless the people here in Naples. I was like the representative there of everybody here. And, and then I took communion, and it was unbelievable. As we took communion, they, it each went, communion went around the circle, and each person gave communion to the next one in line. It was amazing. It really was. It was just unbelievable. I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'm in Carmel, California on the beach. I don't know these people. I've never met them. I probably will never meet them again. And as I go to leave, one guy comes up to me and says, I want you to know that I'm the superintendent in charge of the Evangelical Covenant Church in Minnesota. And I want you to know that your presence here today made 
our service. Major service? I mean, it was like God was saying, do you see? You see, I'm lifting you up. I want you to know that God loves you. I care for you. That all those people that you're praying for and you're burdened for, I have them covered just like I've got you covered. And I went home and I was so lifted up and so blessed that God would give me that privilege. Honestly, give me that privilege there uh, with people that I did not know. It just made me realize how much God loves us and protected us. And I want to thank God for protecting Naples. Let me tell you something. Really, I want to thank God for, that he has protected Naples. I want to thank God that this church is living up to its call. This church is living up to its call. This is a church that has been blessed, yes. This is a church that has been blessed by millions of dollars being given the most incredible location. And you go out into this parking lot and you see hundreds of service vehicles. God is using this place. He is lifting it up and it is standing tall for its call. And I am so blessed to see this and be a part of it and to thank each and every one of you that are doing this. You know, it's my dad used to say, we're all called to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and every once in a while, maybe even speak. Meaning it's your, war, your deeds, it's your feet that spread the gospel. It's your actions that spread the gospel. And out in the parking lot, that's, that's what we see spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ through our very actions. So uh, I'm unbelievably touched, really. I just, uh, I'm so blessed to be back with you, really. I'm so blessed to be back with you. You can't imagine what it's like for me. It's like I've, I've got an intravenous injection, just coming back and, and, and being with our, our loved family this morning and again here with you. Uh, and so I just wanted to share that. I also want to tell you why I'm starting with an apologetic lesson. God has laid this on my heart. I believe that this is going to be a very significant year for us as a class. I believe that we're going to be called by God to spread the gospel in so many ways. We are going to face dark and evil days. Those who are opposed to the gospel are stronger than ever. We live in an evil world. You see it even with the weather. As you see these hurricanes and these torrential forces of evil come about and you wonder why, I'll tell you why. It's because the world is sold out to Satan. That when the creation fell, all right, at the Garden of Eden, even the weather patterns fell. We were never supposed to have hurricanes in the perfect world that God had. But when we sold out to evil, as the Garden of Eden collapsed, all of this, nature itself, St. Paul says it best, creation groans for salvation. All right? And so what does that mean? It means that we have to stand in the breach. God is calling you to stand against evil. God is calling you to spread the good news, to teach people who don't know it. And I had a confirmation of this within the last two weeks as I learned about a woman named Sally Quinn. I don't know if you know her, but if you read the Washington Post or you read the New York Times or you read Newsweek, she writes in a column. And she is in charge of the religion section of the Washington Post. Now, as incredible as that may be, she is, she had always said she was an atheist. How do you like that? 
an atheist being in charge of the religion section. Well, it makes sense in terms of the way the media works. But it gets worse than that. She's written a book now in which she claims, well, she's not really an atheist because she believes in the occult. She believes in the dark forces. She writes in her book that her mother periodically put hexes on people and that when she would do that, her mother, in at least two instances, claimed to kill people based on these hexes. That she herself, Sally Quinn herself, when she had had people that, that said mean things about her or did things she didn't like, put hexes on these three people, and within a short time of her putting those hexes, they died. And she wrote about this. And so here it is, folks. This person, this occultic worshiper, is writing about religion. And not so long ago, this is the woman that, that criticized Sarah Palin's born-again Christianity. Do you remember that? She mocked her in a writing, saying, what kind of person is this? What kind of God is this that would give this so-called worshiper a Down syndrome child? Or, or would allow her to be picked for vice president of the United States knowing she would be defeated? She mocked God. Well, you see, that's where we have to stand up. God is calling you to spread the truth. God, God is calling us to stand tall against dark forces. And that's what apologetics is about. And so this lesson that I'm going to give you is a lesson designed for you to speak to someone who is fair-minded. By that, I mean someone who will say, you know, I, I'm an agnostic. I'm, I'm not an atheist. I just don't know what to believe. I don't really believe uh, in God. I can't believe it. I, I see the Bible. I think it's a bunch of fables written by men. Uh, but someone who is open-minded. And now what, what I'm designing here is a lesson paralleling what St. Paul did at Mars Hill. Because St. Paul faced the same issue that we face. He goes to Mars Hill in Athens, the center of philosophical thought of the world, the ancient world, in which every pagan was there uh, with all kinds of pagan ideas and pagan gods. And St. Paul was called there to preach the gospel. And it's very interesting to see how he approached this. And that's what I'm going to teach us today. How do we approach people when we want to talk to them about God, and yet we know that they might reject the Bible, how do we still speak to them when we talk to them about it? Let's see what Paul did. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Let's begin by looking at, at uh, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And by the way, that's what you always say. You don't want to tell people you're very religious. I'm not interested in religion. Religion is of no account. I'm, I'm interested in Jesus, all right? That's why we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Religiosity is in and of itself of no moment, all right? Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So we'll stop right there. What he did was he found a common way to speak to what they knew. They had, a, they had an altar to an unknown God. Now, they had thousands of other gods, 
for every possible event. And then just so that they would be covered, they had one for the unknown God. Paul, seeing this, uh, the Lord moved on him to use that as the starting point for this uh, sermon. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Notice what he has done there. What he has done is he is bringing the creation. He is bringing the creator. He is saying to them, look around you. See what is around you. See everything that is made. Everything that is made is made by the God of the universe. Verse 25. And he is not served, he, excuse me, and he does not live in temples built by hand. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so what he's demonstrating there is that the very air we breathe, the very existence of what we are is given to us by this divine creator. Uh, and so you see how, God, how he's laying this out. Verse 26, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Effectively, he's giving them the Garden of Eden story. But he's not calling it the Garden of Eden. He's talking about the fact that we all come from one man and one woman. We are all created beings from this great creator. Uh, every nation of, of, of the world coming that way. Uh, and he determined... And he determined the times set forth and the exact places where they should live, meaning that in every single aspect of our lives, God has determined where we are and how we are to be uh, and has put us in, in these various places. He says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find them, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Extraordinary statement to pagans that now as you look around and you see this creation, you see this, you look up in the stars, you see the moon, you see the stars, you see the sun, you see this incredible galaxy laid out before you. You see the mountains and you see the oceans. It's all from the hand of our creator. And here's the point. This is exactly how God expects you to speak to people. And here's the point. This is why it's so believable. If you think that this all happened by chance, this is just one marvelous serendipitous accident. It would be akin to there being an explosion and an expensive watch come out of it. Oh, look at the beautiful watch that I found after that building exploded. It all came together. Or as someone else once said, it would be as if there were an explosion in a print shop and the King James Bible came together as a result of the explosion. Don't you see how ridiculous it is to think that this all happened by accident? And so this is the point of this is that Paul used natural evidence to advance the gospel. Look around, see what's there, understand what's there, come to terms with this. He talks about it in an even more profound way in Romans chapter 1. Turn there. 
verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God, underline that please, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. What are you saying? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. God is speaking to every single person in the world through the evidence of the creation. That's what it says there. That's why God holds them accountable. Even those who sit in a jungle somewhere in the deepest Amazon, they sit there and they have a heart that's designed to communicate with God, and the very creation is communicating. Let's understand this. This is serious. And that's why this issue of speaking to people about the natural evidence of God is important. This really has resonated in my heart this past week. Really, as I, as I come to terms with this terrible hurricane and I see one horrendous uh, natural cataclysm after the other, and, and, and the world is lost, folks. The world is lost. And you are supposed to stand in the bulwark. God's called us to do this. And so are we going to be able to do what God wants us to do? Are we going to be able to stand and do this? Well, I hope you are. I pray that you are. And I want this lesson to, to resonate with you in that regard. Here's some facts I want to give you about the majesty of this creation. And you think about it, that here we are in this solar system, all right, the third planet from the sun. There's a total of nine planets. It's the only planet that has a moon as large as our moon. No other planet in our solar system has it. It's the only planet that sits in the perfect orbit around the sun, tilting at the precise angle so that we get the correct seasons four times a year, correct distance from the sun so that it's not too hot, it's not too cold, with a moon placed precisely at the correct place so that we get tidal actions that clean out the oceans, that clean out the waterways, that's placed with the correct amount of oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen in a perfect proportion so that life can exist here and nowhere else in the universe that we're aware of. Accident? You have to be a moron, really. You have to pray for them. You have to be really ignorant to think that this could possibly be an accident. And when you, be, when you convey this to people, when you explain this to people, and you do it in a loving way. When I spoke, my son asked me this week, what are you going to start with? And I told him an apologetic. He goes, ooh, you better watch it. Christians can be awfully tough with apologetics. They can be nasty. We don't want to be that way. We want to be loving. You want to be loving when you talk about this. We, we really we want to reach out in love. We're the messenger of Jesus Christ, and we want to do it, but we want to show them 
what they haven't thought about, what they haven't contemplated. I mean, here's, here's a simple statistic. We live in a solar system with nine other planets in this galaxy, all right, in which this galaxy has millions of stars, just like our sun. Millions of other stars. If you were to traverse from one end of the galaxy to the other, and you traveled at the speed of 17,000 miles an hour, the speed that the astronauts travel in when they leave the Earth orbit, 17,000 miles per hour, it would take you 1.9 billion, with a B, billion years to go from one end of our galaxy to the other end of our galaxy. 1.9 billion years. And what would you find as you exited our galaxy? A million other galaxies. And here's what they find as they build bigger telescopes. Guess what? Oh, there's more out there. There's more out there. It never seems to end because they don't understand the power of God himself, the creator. You know, it's so appropriate that Hayes spoke about the fear in the early church, the fear and respect and love. This is what this is about. We ourselves almost, almost take this for granted. We come to church, we worship, but do we really think about the power of God, about who we are serving when you see this? And that's what the natural creation is telling us. The bottom line is that no fair-minded person, when you speak to them about, about these things, the way I've just spoken to you, when God has told them to look at the creation, no fair-minded person can walk away and say it's an accident. No. They may not understand how God is. In many ways, we don't understand how God is. We don't understand how these things come down, but we know that God is behind it. We know that he is. And so that's what our job is. And so the next question I, as I give you is, as I talk to you about how Paul did this, how he used this as his opening to spread the gospel of Jesus, and we know that even though a church was never established there in Mars Hill, the Bible tells us there were people that came to Christ in Mars Hill who heard this, who came to faith. And so how can we discuss the historical validity now of Jesus? with people that don't necessarily believe the Bible. So let's take that. Let's not talk about the Bible right now as the inspired word of God. Let's talk about it rather as a book of historical value. How can we show people that what's in the Bible is worthy to be considered separate and apart from just, expect, just accepting that God was behind the writing of it? Well, we know that all, pretty much all, great historians agree that Jesus Christ was an actual historical figure. All right? There's many, many examples of that. And if you look at my presentation on, on Lee Strobel's book, uh, which is online, you can get that. Uh, it's quite clear that that's pretty much uniformly accepted. Now, they don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but they believe that he was a historical person, a teacher, a rabbi, uh, that had followers. There's no question that that's evidence. So now the question becomes, well, what can we show by way of eyewitness proof that would demonstrate the accuracy of what we want to speak about, about Jesus? Well, 
If you go back and look, you will see that there were eight people that were actually eyewitnesses or claimed to be directly in touch with eyewitnesses who wrote about Jesus. Eight people, eyewitnesses who wrote about Jesus. They were Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, and the author of Hebrews. Every single one of them, every one of them, was an eyewitness directly or spoke to an eyewitness and wrote about it. Um, and so uh, as you see this, you begin to lay out the proof to people that what we speak about is not a fable, it's not a story, it's not an oral tradition, but it's rather a well-researched, well-regarded historical record. Now, I'll prove this to you if you turn to Luke chapter 1. Verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Let me stop right there. Notice the words, many, not one, not a few, but many had undertaken to draw up an account, meaning a written account, a written record. We don't have the benefit of it now, but there were many written records that were drawn up in the early church about who Jesus was, of the things that had been fulfilled among us. And by the way, this is being written about by Luke, uh, Luke who traveled with Paul, Luke who was an extremely intelligent man, who was a physician, uh, and, and Luke who was located uh, out of Ephesus, Luke who spent time speaking directly with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Don't you think that Mary gave him chapter and verse of everything that she experienced? He was a first-hand recorder of history. He was a historian of the first rank. And so here he is, going back as he writes this, researching it, and seeing the written records. He's holding the written records. Uh, this very intelligent man, as he's going back and sifting it up, in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They were handed down. This isn't some game of telephone or post office where one person whispers into the ear of the other. This was, these were handwritten accounts. By whom? By those who were eyewitnesses, apostles, ministers, and servants of the world. Jesus sent out numerous people to go out and spread the gospel. We know that in one section, he sent out 70. So think about all these people having direct interaction with Jesus, both as the apostles, both as the uh, ministers, both as the servants, going out into the world, working with Jesus, seeing Jesus, every single day, 24 hours a day, or 365 days a year, and they were writing about it, written records. And he had those records. Therefore, since I, 
This is verse 3. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In the original Greek, I read a commentary, that meant there, that translation meant that he personally went down and reviewed the records. He checked the records for accuracy. Were they reliable? Could you consider them reliable? He went, he read them, he saw them. And so he's writing this account as a distillation of all those other written records. I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Can you see now how we have to speak to a lost world? Now you're saying to people, this, this isn't just a story. This isn't just fables. This isn't just made up. First-rate historians stood there and sifted the records, read the records, talked to the eyewitnesses, and then they wrote about it. That's what you're holding in your hand. Forget whether it's the inspired word of God right now, which we know it is, and we get confirmation of that through the Holy Spirit. Just from the historical aspect of it, the very historicity, as they call it, you see how powerful this is, and you understand it. This is what we have to tell the world as we see this. Uh, and so effectively, this is a first-rate historical account. And I can tell you that based on my research and reading, there were people at the turn of the last century in the early 1900s that came out of Cambridge and Oxford who traveled to the Middle East, who traveled to where Paul walked, and went there specifically to undercut his ministry, to prove that it was a fable, to prove that what he wrote was not accurate. And when they came back and they lifted the rocks and sifted back into the language, what they found was unbelievable confirmation that the very language that Paul used could only have come out of that period of time. It could only have come out of a period between 40 and 70 AD, 15, 20 years after Jesus died. And they saw that. And the man who went there became a Christian. All right, this great professor from Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, because he saw that Paul, that Luke rather, Luke was a first-rate historian, that they were accurate and that, and that they were entitled to believe. And so you see this. And, you, and, and so to me, the question becomes, we need to present this to a world that, that was lost. They don't understand this. Um, and so this is so powerful to me that, that, that uh, Luke speaks about the eyewitness account, the eyewitness account. Uh, and that's what it's about. We have a right to, to trust these things, to trust these words, because they were written in, in the first person based on eyewitnesses. Uh, and that they were writing about Jesus. Uh, and they were writing about the miracles. And that you have the right to believe them. They were not secondhand. They were firsthand. They were all carefully researched. Uh, now I want you to turn to Second Peter Chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Now, Peter's giving us greater clarity about why you can trust these writings. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We did not invent these stories about Jesus we did not write fables. We could have. 
We wrote the truth. We, we wrote what actually happened. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Praise God. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, I am well pleased. We heard that voice. We were there. We are the eyewitnesses. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, Mount Transfiguration. Can you imagine that, that you're hearing the man who stood there and listened to the voice of God speaking about the Son of God? That doesn't let the hair on the back of your neck come up. And I don't know what to say. You realize the power and majesty of this creator who has loved us and cared for us. I mean, to me, this is so amazing as I study this. And the world doesn't understand it. And that's why I'm saying to you, this is what you have to do. You have to show people. that This is why what we see uh, is reliable. Uh, so here you see another apostle who was with, was with John. Uh, take a look at... Uh, the Gospel of the Epistle of John, 1 John chapter 1. Let's take a look at that. 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, underline that, which we have seen, underline that, with our eyes, which we have looked at, underline that, and our hands have touched, underline that. We've seen it, we've seen him, we've heard him, we touched him, we were with him. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And notice the word is capitalized, meaning the logos, meaning the creator, God himself. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus, who was with God from the beginning, who was there as the very creative agent who created the universe, who then tabernacled with us his entire life. We felt him. We touched him. We heard him. We saw him. This is no fable. This is no mirage. The world doesn't understand this. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Do you understand what you're seeing there? Again, over and over and over, the recitation of we saw, we heard, we touched. He exists. He's real. It's not a fable. It's not made up. It's the real thing. We saw it. We are eyewitnesses of it. What an incredible passage this is. Um, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Again, I'm doing this to show the historical reliability uh, of what's written about Jesus. Acts chapter 2. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact that means the entire early church. We're all witnesses of the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. They saw it. 
with their own eyes, and they wrote about it. And there are multiple presentations that confirm it. Uh, and so you see it. Uh, here was another example. This apostle John was with Jesus the whole time. Uh, and so you see it over and over. We have seen, we have heard, again, over and over and over. Uh, and so uh, Acts chapter 3, while we're there, park on verse 14. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. I mean, isn't this overwhelming? We're witnesses of it. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. We saw it. We saw him get out of a grave, and he walked with us afterwards. We're firsthand eyewitnesses. And you see the power of this. Uh, and, and so this is what you have to convey to people. When you tell them, look, this is reliable. I want you to be aware of what you're thinking. You hear people talk about the fact that it's unreliable. You can't, these books are written too late. You can't go by this. I'm giving you hard and fast facts. Open your mind. Open your eyes. Look at the creation. See what God has done as he speaks to your heart. And then look at this book just as a historical record as you come to terms with, with, with what God has done and what God has, has written. Uh, and it's, it's unbelievable. First, look at Acts chapter 10. Over and over and over, the recitation of we are witnesses. We are witnesses. That's what this is about. And by the way, God has given you the Holy Spirit for you to be a witness. The Holy Spirit resides in your heart so that you can be a witness. Because as you speak, as you speak about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is empowering to give you force of your discussion. When you speak, it's not just your mind talking. When I speak like this, it's not just my intellect or my years of education. It's, none of that is important. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart that's telling me the words to say. And it'll be the same for you as you do this. As you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Verse 37, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We are witnesses. We saw it. We touched him. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. God had chosen the very people who were to be the witnesses. You understand that? The eyewitnesses. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. How do you like that? Is that good enough for you? It wasn't mere apparition. This was no ghost. This is a guy who ate with us and drank with us after he was raised from the dead. Not only that, Jesus cooked a barbecue fish for them. Remember that? That's how much Jesus loves you. You like that? You're worried about how much Jesus loves you? Will he cover you in a storm? Will he protect you? Let me tell you. He loves you so much 
that he cooked a barbecue fish dinner for you right there. That's the essence of the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, really, what a message this is to a lost world, understanding the power, the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the world and the dead. Here's the point, folks. God has called you and me to present this story about Jesus to a lost world. You can't escape it. I spent a lot of years in my life trying to escape this. Okay? You know the story where I felt like I wasn't called. I wasn't called to preach. I wasn't holy enough to preach. I had a lot of warts in my life. I wasn't as good as my father or my grandfather. And you want to know something? God doesn't care about any of that. Your righteousness, whatever it's perceived as, is filthy rags before God. None of us is righteous. If you think you're going to get righteous and at that point that you're holy enough, God is going to use you, man, you are so out of line that you have no idea. He takes us in the condition that we are in and he decides to use us when we submit to him. It's submission. It's about you sitting in this chair right now and you're saying, I know John's words are getting to me, but really, come on, I can't do what he does. I can't get up and speak publicly. Maybe you can't, but you can be the, the emissary in your family. You could speak to your children. You could speak to your neighbors. You could speak to those in your country club. God is going to put you in places where you've never thought you could be for the express purpose of you speaking about what I've just said, about why you believe in Jesus. And I haven't even once spoken about the inspired word of God yet. All I've talked about is the historical basis of why we believe what we do. And you see this, and it's overwhelming. Uh, and, and so this is why God has told us, why God says to us, why we have to do what we have to do. Uh, and so you need to understand something. The skeptics will say this, well, wait a minute. You're citing this Bible Ooh, you know, we believe the Bible was written hundreds of years after Jesus was alive. That's false. It's false. That's a lie. We know that the New Testament, based on solid historical evidence, was probably written in a period of 30 years from about uh, 40 AD, which would have been about 10 years after Jesus died on the cross, to about 75 AD, meaning that within 35 years, most historians now believe that the entire uh, New Testament was written. 35 years. And yet we pick up ancient Greek writings that are written 1,400 years after the fact, 1,400 years, and we view it as sacred, exactly as those great philosophers wrote, Plato, Aristotle. 1,400 years and yet the very story of Jesus, written no more than 35 years after his death, is in front of us as an accurate historical record. The world has to know this. We don't stand silently when we hear lies perpetuated or ignorance perpetuated. The time has come for people like us, wherever you are, to stand tall. Believe me, I really feel a burden to say this today. You know, maybe it's the post-hurricane 
recognition of the evil that we face. But I want, I want to say this to you, that you may have people in your family that are not Christians. You better speak to them. You better talk to them. You may have friends that you've been friends with for many years, and you've avoided this topic. It's time to, to step up and talk to them. It's time to reach out. You may have people that you play golf with or in the country club who have not accepted Jesus. It's time to talk to them. And you talk to them in a language that they can understand, an experience that they can accept. You don't talk yet about the Bible being the, the incarnate word of God. You speak to them, first of all, to prove that the creation speaks about Jesus and about God, that this is no mere happenstance, that some powerful creative designer, forget right now how he is configured, but some creative designer put this all together so that this world stands as a jewel amongst the galaxies. What an amazing story this is. And we've not said it. Well, the time has come to say it. I'll continue this next week. Let's close. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for, for the lesson that you've given us. I thank you for these dear people who we love. Lord, I ask you to inspire them and to give them strength and courage to go out to the world and tell the story of you, Father, to go to a lost world that has no idea and show them why they need to accept you. Give our people the backbone and the courage to step up and do it. Help them and give them the peace to accept this responsibility be with them this week and protect them and bring them back safely next week to continue the story of your word, Lord, in every way. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.